Today's interview is a live taping of the show from the annual faculty symposium at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. The day-long symposium was called Technocultures in the 21st Century. I had the honor of hosting a fireside chat with Becca Lewis from Data and Society titled Looking Past the Facts, Media Manipulation and the Online Far-Right. If you're someone like me who spends time advocating for a creative and collaborative culture on the internet, this episode will be sobering, but required listening. The good people at Data and Society are reporting out for our benefit on the societal phenomena that occur on the internet. As you can imagine, 2017 was an important year for them. This report is a critical investigation of all that emerged around the 2016 election. If, like me, you have learning to do about the difference between fake news and media manipulation or alt-right and alt-light, or how a little green frog took over momentarily as a symbol of hate across our media, stay tuned. Before we get started, my thanks to the faculty of the Department of Social Sciences, Human Services, and Criminal Justice at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, who were amazing hosts for this event. If you're a fan and want to help the show, I hope you'll return wherever you downloaded the podcast, rate and give us a review. It matters a lot. Last but not least, if you take a lot from this conversation and want to do more research, check out all of Data and Society's reports by linking to their site in the show notes. Here we go. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Please do 
check that out. Um, if anyone was feeling was here this morning and feeling like uh, we needed to breathe some hope into uh, what our future looks like as it relates to technology, um, I welcome you and would uh, start by saying that this is probably not the session to breathe <laughs> that hope. Um, however, I do want to start uh, just by asking you, Becca, where do you, on the, on the spectrum of uh, hope to uh, this is just going horribly wrong, <laughs> where do you fall? Oh, good question. Um, you know, I, in studying some of these communities, you know, we, we study um, white nationalist communities, neo-Nazi communities, some of the, the worst of humanity. Um, but I actually am, uh, I'm more optimistic than one might think. <laughs> um, purely because I have also seen all of the, the good that can come from technology. Um, and the way that marginalized and oppressed communities have been able to utilize technology um, to to bolster um, uh, themselves and and you know fight fight against oppression, fight against marginalization, make voices for themselves, make room for themselves in larger conversations. Um, and so I think when when we talk about technology, we try to uh, think about it in a larger context of what of everything that's going on, right? So like. Um, we don't think that, that Facebook and Twitter are going to solve racism and sexism. Those are much longer standing issues that maybe my, my optimism is less, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, less far on the, on the scale there. But, um, but I think that with technology, you know, it, I don't think it's inherently bad. Yeah. Um, me too. Two for hope. <laughs> um, and here's, here's some other hope I'll infuse is, uh, before we get into the, the scary stuff, is um, being here gives me a ton of hope. Seeing these students here for this conversation gives me a, a, an extreme burst of hope. No one's listening to this and thinking uh, in this audience in the back of the room, you know what, I wanna do nothing about this. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't wanna tell my friends about this. I don't wanna raise my children to be more aware of what's going on. Christine, who invited me here, uh, Professor Farias, has a junior in college who's studying computer science, which was not part of your uh, presentation, and history. And he's somebody who is really interested in uh, deploying technologies for uh, people, you know, underserved communities and, and, and humans. And I think that um, these are the things that give me hope when I get to have conversations with young people about uh, how they see activism in this century. Uh, technology's not an other thing, it's a part of it. And, and so um, I have a ton of hope. Um, but let's get back to you. <laughs> um, so, so 1993 was the year that many credit as being the Big Bang of the internet. Um, and uh, what I get to do with the show is I get to uh, interview great people like you and go geek out about the thing that you've been geeking out for years and try to do it uh, the Cliff's Notes version, right? So I went digging for other Big, ba big Bang type milestones in technology. 1440 was the printing press, uh, 3200 around the time that cuneiform uh, was traced to 1895, the cinematograph uh, by the Lumiere brothers in France. Mm -hmm. Do you think any of these measure up to the spectrum and depth of the influence that the internet has uh, on modern culture? 
Oh, starting with the small questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, easy. <laughs> I guess I, I have two kind of contradictory answers to that. The, the first is yes, I think that they do. I think that we, um, we tend to overstate the impact of anything happening in the current day, right? And so there's a lot of talk, particularly coming out of like technology companies themselves, who have a vested interest in saying that they're kind of upending and, and revolutionizing uh, the world. Um, you know, there's a tendency to exaggerate the, the impacts. Um, and that's not to say that the internet hasn't had a major impact. I think it's had an incredible impact uh, for both good and bad. Uh, but yeah, think, thinking back in history, there's so many uh, other technologies, uh, you know, even in addition to the ones that you listed, um, there's some that, that I tend to geek out a little about a little bit that get uh, not as much attention like the telegraph, mm. uh, which for anyone that's interested in geeking out about these things, there's a great uh, book on this called uh, The Victorian Internet. And basically talking all, all about how the telegraph actually connected oh, people in the 19th century in a way that actually really foreshadowed the internet. Yeah. Um, the telephone, the TV. Could you imagine sitting there on the telegraph? Like, <laughs> like LOL. So actually, are you going to the to the club? One of the one of the funny and unexpected things in this book is that people actually would have kind of like um, like telegraph operators would have like online romances. <laughs> they would start developing romances between each other. <laughs> but um, but so that's the first. My first answer is kind of like, no, we need to to keep this in perspective. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think that. Um, it's worth even taking a step back from thinking about like how is technology impacting society, even though that's kind of how I phrase what we're doing at our think tank. Um, what we're also trying to understand is how society impacts technology. Oh, I love that. And how the two kind of really influence each other and are kind of inextricable. So, you know, if you think about any huge modern event like, um, you know, the election of Donald Trump, and you think like, okay, would this have happened without the internet? Mm. Like that's almost impossible to determine. I mean, obviously he um, he used Twitter in ways that had never been used before. We have kind of um, like a lot of, same with Barack Obama, there was a lot of like use of the internet to, to target voters. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, Donald Trump is of the era of reality TV and he made his fame through TV. Um, and you know, a lot of what, uh, you know, was getting capitalized on was, um, you know, economic issues, racial fears uh, and anxieties, uh, gender fears and anxieties. So it kind of, you know, it's, it's really tough to parse out which aspects of it were just the internet. Mm, I love that. And, and can I, uh, a related, can I plug a related mm -hmm. resource for data and society? Yeah. So uh, for those um, who are podcast listeners, I hope you are, I hope you're subscribing <laughs> right now to No Such Thing. Uh, but for those who are podcast listeners, um, Krista Tippett did an interview with the founder of Data and Society, Dana Boyd, uh, around her last book, uh, maybe two books ago, It's Complicated. Mm -hmm. And she talks a lot about this dynamic uh, and how we talk a lot about um, how technology is influencing us. And, and she makes a great uh, argument that we need to consider both uh, the push and pull, which is so, so powerful. So. Um, one of the things I noticed in doing some research on what you've been doing research on is that uh, we do have scholars in common, scholars that guide my work and scholars that guide uh, your work, and, and a source of hope for everybody should be um, scholars like Henry Jenkins. Uh, so Dr. Jenkins has been doing 
research on networked public spaces for a very long time, and, and uh, he's somebody who, if you don't have time for uh, all of his amazing research in text, go check him out on YouTube, um, because he makes some really important points about this. Um, my question to you, before we get into, uh, too far into the weeds, is what are the aspects of the internet that are being leveraged both for good and for other? Yeah, um, first of all, just to second the, the endorsement of uh, <laughs> Henry Jenkins' work, if anyone hasn't read him, highly recommended. Um, and I think that, you know, thinking about the internet in the terms that he thought, thinks about it uh, is really useful when we, when we talk about these things. So, you know, networking is a huge capability that the internet provides. Um, some of the, the panels earlier were talking about this uh, in ways that were fascinating, you know, in terms of um, like uh, older gay generations being able to, you know, kind of get out of their uh, smaller communities or, or, you know, kind of shed some invisibility and, and get on uh, online. That's a lot of what we see with communities of young people. Um, and that can be incredible, right? It, it has been incredible, like in general for LGBTQ communities. Um, it's been incredible just in terms of creativity. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for a while there actually was a bit more of like this utopian ideal of the internet and because of this networked capability, this idea that it had this democratic potential. Um, and part of what our research has been doing is, you know, being kind of the negative Nancys in the room and saying, look, um, you know, marginalized communities can use the internet to network, but so can, uh, you know, hate groups and, and uh, conspiracy theorists and so on. Now I think that the kind of the shift of public dialogue, or the public dialogue has shifted a bit more kind of towards the, the attitude that we've had, which is a bit of pessimism. Um, and so I think it is really useful to try to like um, do a, a push and pull between those two and make sure we're not, you know, falling into um, deterministic thinking one way mm. or the other. But um, I digress. The, the first aspect is networking. Um, the other thing I would say is the ability to uh, amplify um, and, and for kind of anyone to potentially reach a, a large number of people. Um, and so you do have internet celebrities cropping up. You have people gaining huge amounts of influence who don't have traditional backgrounds in journalism, but who are kind of on the ground reporting on protests, filming with their, uh, with their iPhone camera. Um, and so it really does kind of upend some of the traditional ideas and, and capabilities around journalism, uh, news, politics, and so on. Mm. And who gets to participate? Who gets to participate, exactly. Yeah. Um, so let me show an example. Um, <laughs> this is one that Henry Jenkins likes to talk a lot about. Uh, this is the Harry Potter Alliance. Anybody uh, raise your hand if you're a member? No, no members of the Harry Potter Alliance. So, so, <laughs> so Harry Potter Alliance is a pretty amazing thing, right? This is a, a group of um, young people who, uh, huge, obviously, started out of sort of the fan fiction movement. These are young people who were huge fans of Harry Potter. There's now a nonprofit that mobilizes these fans to actually become, uh, you know, wizards of social activism in their own time, in their own context. Um, this is a partnership that they did with a group that was building a media campaign. Um, I don't know if I put the title up here, but this was um, a, a trip to um, uh, Harry and Hermione and friends going uh, 
to do a trip for their school supplies um, and uh, to eventually attack Lord Voldemort. Uh, it was about Walmart and uh, the sort of outsourcing of their school supplies for Wizard School. Uh, but it was this amazing campaign of activism and, and uh, it involved young people, so it's always been a really important one for me um, I would encourage you, we didn't have time to, to play this video, but I would encourage you to go and, and take a look at that. Um, the question here I even have, so it's Lord, Lord Waldemort, and it's a series, it's like a three-part series, so go check that out. So the point is actually about parody in this case, right? So here's a really powerful uh, context where parody is being used, leveraging um, the internet as a way to spread message, uh, put word out, engage actors who are not necessarily always participating in activism. Um, so, so let's talk about how parody is a gateway to both the good and the bad. Why is parody so relevant to the work that you're doing at Data and Society and, and especially to some of the reporting you've done recently? Well, the internet has been great for parody. I mean, if you think of any like popular viral video or meme, then you can probably just as easily think about like the hundreds of parodies that have spun off from it. So like, yeah. it doesn't have to be political, right? It could be gun, Gangnam Style. Uh, <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a while. I had to double check what the name was. You know, any any uh, viral moment, um, and you have you know again, this is part of the the affordances of the internet. It means you know because anyone can produce videos, produce content, produce ideas. Um, it becomes really generative at any time, um, you know, there's a big pop culture moment, people are able to kind of contribute to the conversation and parody is one of the easy ways to do that. Um, and it can be really cool and it can be used, uh, you know, towards kind of democratic and, and um, participatory ends. Uh, what, what we end up observing in our research among uh, far right groups is that there's also a danger of radicalization as far as parody goes because um, a lot of groups on, uh, particularly on um, anonymous message boards like 4chan and 8chan, um, they'll use kind of this, um, they call it like ironic racism and sexism. Um, they'll kind of couch racist and sexist ideas in a level of humor um, that acts as kind of a shield for them. They can say, oh, we were just joking. If you're taking this seriously, you're being too, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're taking it too seriously. Um, but at the same time, it actually can make it more appealing, um, take some of the you know, edges off for someone that might be kind of dabbling in these ideas anyway. So if someone is drawn into a community from like, you know, what they think of as like a subversive meme, um, then they can kind of use the same uh, strategies for themselves and think, okay, this isn't really racist, it's just kind of like edgy humor, mm -hmm. um, but they'll get drawn into more radical spaces that way. Yeah. Um, show show of honest hands when she mentioned Gangnam Style. Did that did that hit? People know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> e extra credit if you'll if you'll stand up and do it. <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> um, that would have been amazing. Um, so so yeah. That's an aside. After I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come and see you. So um, more examples. Let's talk about uh, Pepe the Frog. Um, so this is uh, speaking of uh, the subversive and uh, 
talking about imagery and parody and how we leverage aspects of the internet. Um, tell the story about Pepe the Frog and how does an, an innocent looking little, um, the, the other green frog that I know is Kermit, right? <laughs> so like already right. in terms of uh, family, this frog has to be innocent, right? Um, <laughs> tell, tell the story. Yeah, Pepe has had an interesting journey. Um, so I'll, I'll do the same thing, show of hands of who recognizes Pepe the Frog? So okay, yeah, so a lot of hands like a, being raised. Like a third, yeah. Yeah, um, which I would say is, is a lot for being kind of a, a weird internet hate symbol. Um, but, but Pepe actually started like not as a hate symbol at all. Pepe started as a cartoon character um, developed by an internet cartoonist, Matt Fury. And um, Pepe was just kind of this like loser frog who kind of was like okay with being a loser. Um, and he got embraced by these communities. Again, uh, anonymous image boards tend to be this space where like lots of internet geeks who maybe are a bit socially awkward in person, they'll, they'll gather and um, form this online subculture and they embraced Pepe because they felt like, oh, we're all losers too, but we're gonna embrace being losers and Pepe represents that. Um, so they started, they several years ago took up Pepe as a mascot and uh, he became a meme. Um, now, as, as happens with a lot of memes that start on 4chan, it ended up getting more and more mainstream. So um, if anyone's familiar with the, um, uh, the memes of cats saying like, I can have cheeseburger and uh, the, um, you know, kind of innocent cat memes. A lot of those started on 4chan. Well, the same thing happened with Pepe. Pepe. Can, you, can we can we yeah. pause it uh, for a brief uh, public service announcement? Yeah. 4chan and 8chan. 4chan and 8chan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I get ahead of myself. 4chan and 8chan are um, they're called image boards, which means essentially they're forums. Um, they're forums where people can have conversations with each other. Um, they're called image boards because in order to post to one of them. Um, in order to start a thread, you have to post an image. Um, and then people can reply with comments to that image. Um, they allow you to post anonymously, which means a lot of people will end up kind of um, testing the limits of what they can say on those platforms. Um, often that ends up being racist and sexist content um, and other bigoted content. Um, but it actually started as kind of a, um, a take off on a, a Japanese image board that was called Tuchan that was for anime. Um, so it kind of started from like anime communities, it grew out from there. Um, it became just both of both of these uh, hubs kind of became spots for uh, internet geeks, trolls, uh, people posting memes, um, all of these things. And then throughout the, the 2016 election, it kind of also became this hub for conspiracy theories and, and to a certain extent, the alt-right. Yeah. Um, so really, it's kind of like a, um, a rat's nest of the worst internet content. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, is it safe? Um, you tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. um, I am, but <laughs> tell me if they're wrong. If they're the correct one. Um, you use the term internet geeks. Um, yeah. And geek, I think, in this context is a is sort of uh, is both a term uh, of uh, sort of empowerment in this context. It's sort of a stepping stone for mm -hmm. like-minded uh, young people using the internet in this way, not um, derogatory. Exactly. This is generally it would be people who are self 
uh, self-identified geeks. That's right. Um, and and <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, same with um, gamers. There's there's uh, a certain kind of gamer that um, you know in recent years actually after this incident called Gamergate came to be known as a Gamergator, but it's a kind of like geeky, young, generally considered to be like a young white man, that's the stereotype, um, who is socially awkward and likes kind of retreating into video games. Well, everything I'm saying sounds like a little bit derogatory, but this has become like this identity that's a badge of honor for these people. They're not like your typical masculine, uh, you know, playing sports or on the, the varsity right. football yeah. team, but they, they've kind of embraced this different kind of masculinity that's like, uh, you know, we're the, we're the yeah. deep men in the, of the world. Yeah. yeah. I did, when you were saying uh, young white male retreating mm -hmm. into video games, I noticed you sort of looked over in my direction <laughs> and it felt, it felt awkward. Um, Purely coincidental. <laughs> so, so decades from now, really mm -hmm. on, on Pepe the Frog, uh, let's envision ourselves two decades from now, right? Yeah. We're thinking about Pepe the Frog, who um, really rose to call it internet fame, uh, yeah. but, but really broader fame during the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, what do you think two decades from now Pepe characterizes and, and uh, that, that we will have learned from Pepe? Well, so, so just to finish the, the tale of Pepe's twisted journey, yeah. um, once, once Pepe became really uh, popular in the mainstream, like Katy Perry tweeted out a Pepe meme at one time, um, and I think Rihanna may have, uh, you know, celebrities were tweeting it out, everyone was using it. Um, and so 4chan felt, and 4chan and 8chan felt possessive, right? They're, they wanted to put boundaries on this internet community that they had. And so they said, you know, let's try to make Pepe affiliated with the, the most awful things we can think of. Mm. So they started, that it actually, Pepe became this hate symbol through kind of joking among people on 4chan and 8chan who said, let's make this content as racist as we can, as sexist as we can. There was a lot of this like gross, um, uh, kind of like base level humor, even you know, aside from, from racism and sexism. Um, but what happens on the internet, uh, when you're being uh, jokingly racist and sexist, a lot of times uh, people, surprise, surprise, read it as actual racism and sexism. Um, so you had a couple of things happening with Pepe. Um, first of all, you had actual white nationalists and white supremacists who decided they loved Pepe and they embraced him uh, as this symbol. Um, and on the flip side, you had, um, you know, Democratic politicians and people seeing this, you know, <coughs> bigoted uh, meme getting spread around, and they were worried about it. So here's this photo of Hillary Clinton. Um, some people might be aware, partway through the campaign, um, some people on Hillary Clinton's campaign um, released this uh, uh, explainer about Pepe the Frog and what he right. meant. Um, 4chan and, and 8chan, the people on there, were thrilled because to them, to be hated by the mainstream is to have made it. Yeah. Um, and in that moment, right, it was actually, uh, you know, um, the Hillary campaign was attempting to make people aware of, of the frog so they could counter, you know, the ideas behind it. But it, in these moments, it actually can have the unintended effect of just kind of being PR, like free PR yeah. for, for Pepe. Yeah. Um, so to get back to your question about uh, 20 years from what now. What have we learned <laughs> um, 20 years from now? You know, I, I don't think that Pepe is going to be popular 20 years from now because they're already starting to be over him, right? People are aware of what Pepe is now. Um, 
uh, they're trying to move on to the next thing that they think is interesting and irreverent. But um, I think that a lot of what we were seeing here was kind of like um, a new coat of paint on very old ideas of racism and sexism. You can turn it into this uh, stupid green frog. You can you know, call it the alt-right. You can change the terminology and the imagery. But if you're promoting the same ideas, we need to be wary of that. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, the the lessons that I think we should learn from that are about like resisting any any level of novelty attached mm. to these ideas. Mm. Is it fair? Is it fair to say to uh, that communication um, of all in in any medium, mm -hmm. no matter how seemingly benign, is serious? Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, this feels like a good place um, to give you a drink of water, and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna um, just um, offer a quote. Right, this was um, a gentleman by the name of Nathan Poe, and you can tell us um, briefly about Poe's law after I, I give this quote. But um, Poe's law came out of this quote, where um, Poe, who was a software developer, said, "Without a winking smiley or other blatant display of humor." It is utter, utterly impossible to parody a creationist in such a way that someone won't mistake it for the genuine article. So Poe's Law is a really important um, kind of lesson to us about how, uh, how high the stakes are for communication uh, on the internet. Um, yeah, absolutely, and I think that goes back directly to what you're saying, right? Um, that, that it's worth taking even the most like, um, banal or like seemingly trivial pieces of media, yeah. we have to take them seriously because, um, uh, yeah, Pepe the Frog, a, a silly internet meme actually can be carrying uh, these these really, you know, um, oppressive ideas and, and be having impacts that creates actual harm. Poison. Yes. It's actually a poison frog. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I want to stay on the election for a second, uh, mm -hmm. and this is our kind of pivot to fake news. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so, I was surprised when I read the report, and I think a lot of people are surprised that after we heard, um, especially Donald Trump, decry fake news all throughout the election, that the majority of it during the last election actually favored him over Hillary. Mm -hmm. um, the motives, though, weren't necessarily political, and I wanted you to say more about that. Uh, to help us understand the difference between fake news and media manipulation um, that serves the alt-right. Yeah, so fake news is a tricky term because it can mean a number of different things to, to different people. Um, obviously when, oh there we go, <laughs> uh, when Donald Trump talks about fake news, he is implying something very different than when kind of like academics, uh, you know, people at my think tank and so on are talking about fake news. Um, what, what he is doing is attacking the mainstream media and saying that he doesn't find the mainstream media viable because they're critical of him. Um, that's a, a different thing to unpack. That's not what we're looking at. What, what we're looking at is actual misinformation that spreads, things that, that can be, uh, you know, fact-checked, um, uh, so, you know, source-checked and so on. Um, so a couple of things. Um, there, we notice that there are a lot of different reasons that people share fake news um, or that people create fake news uh, even before it gets shared. So a lot of times there is this idea, you know, we are studying the far right, they're trying to spread far right ideology. 
So a lot of times it is an ideological reason behind sharing uh, or making this content. Uh, but sometimes it's just financial. Um, sometimes people will create fake news stories because they know that it's salacious or interesting and it will get clicks and then they can get ad revenue from it. Um, so some people may have read this. There was a, a really um, insane story that came out from Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed News where he found that yeah. uh, a lot of the fake news stories that were getting created during the election were coming from these teenagers in Macedonia who uh, had no political agenda, or at least they claimed not to, um, but they just found that, that creating fake news was extremely lucrative. Right. Um, and what they found was creating uh, anti-Hillary fake news was more lucrative than creating anti-Trump fake news. Right. So uh, from those perspectives, it was kind of like the ideology and the, and the um, financial incentives went hand in hand. Can you just say how it becomes lucrative? Um, so, so in terms of the, the economic incentives, um, you know, if in terms of the internet and the way that web pages get set up, you can track how many people have clicked on an article, um, and based on the number of clicks you get, you can charge advertisers uh, a certain amount of money for you know for them to advertise on your web page. Yeah. So the more clicks an article gets, the more you can charge advertisers because you have a bigger audience. Um, and and a lot of times, you know, these these insane headlines about you know Hillary Clinton is running like uh, a sex trafficking ring out of her basement in D.C. Um, you know, that's an insane headline. People might be intrigued enough to click on it, and then that generates ad revenue for the person who created that article. Right. Um, so it's like the the dude on the sidewalk who like wants to hand you the the thing uh, to the club. Yeah. Um, like you throw something that's racist and insane propaganda and you're more likely to take the card or click on it yeah. to earn revenue for the uh, property owner, right? Exactly. And um, uh, this happens like not just for, for fake news as well, right? Like the, the ad metrics are how a lot of the journalism industry is making money these days. Yeah. Um, and so like you'll get a lot of um, just no... Um, it's not factually incorrect, but it's clickbait that's still trying to lure people to um, to click on an article. So something like, you know, these two childhood friends reunited and you'll never guess what happens next, right? That's, <laughs> that's clickbait. That's trying to get people yeah. to click so that then it can drive up ad revenue. Right. Beware. <laughs> um, the article, if you've ever fallen prey to clickbait, which you know you have, <laughs> Um, we all have, I think. The article's never good, right? It's <laughs> never like the two-headed mom with 17 babies and a husband who's a pterodactyl. That's not real. You know better. Um, so just to read from that report, uh, the study from BuzzFeed, um, in the 2016 election, articles from uh, hyper-partisan news outlets inspired more engagement on Facebook than those from mainstream media sources. Of the top 20 articles with the most engagement, 17 were pro-Trump or anti-Clinton. Um, so my question, before we um, get too deep into platforms, people are definitely a little obsessed given recent news with Facebook. Um, why is Facebook such a good platform for uh, trolls and, and general internet miscreant behavior? Well. There's a lot of great research being done, and I can't take credit for this. This is not happening at Data and Society, but there's a lot of great research being done about what makes people trust certain news articles. And sometimes it's the, the source that it's coming from in terms of like the, you know, 
is it the New York Times, is it the Washington Post? Um, but a lot of times it's about who shares it. And so, you know, people are finding that, that um, or scholars are finding that people are more likely to, to trust news that comes from someone they already trust, whether it's a family member, a friend, or so on. And so Facebook is particularly powerful because if you see, you know, a good friend of yours post a story, most likely that's going to be more appealing to click on than some random person that you've never met on Twitter um, or There's that you've trust. never seen before. There's a level of trust there yeah. based on how tight the networks are on Facebook and who you're networking with. Right. Um, also, it's just the most widely used platform. Right. Um, and so I think just based on size, it inherently becomes important. I mean, uh, I don't have the exact statistics, but, you know, it's the most popular social media platform. Um, the, the amount of adults in the U.S. who use it is... Uh, is you know extremely high at this point yeah. um and so it just has that going for it yeah and if you look at some of the pew research mm -hmm. uh and they look a lot at at specifically platforms and usage it, it seems like the trend line is continues to grow but mm -hmm. that for young people facebook is uh less uh source it's it's still very often the often used but not so much for socializing and more for either right. professional connections or family connections right, right. um not not their IRL uh, person. Right. At the same time, they do love using Instagram and WhatsApp, which are both owned by Facebook. Right. So there you go. <laughs> um, so I, I want to be sensitive to time and make sure that we have time for the Q&A. Um, before we do that, uh, I want to talk about YouTube for a second mm -hmm. and, and some of the work that you're doing most recently. I'm, I'm a dad. I'm somebody who works with teens uh, and tweens very regularly and, and who um, very much promotes uh, the ideals of uh, being creators over consumers. Um, I, that said, I also have critical questions about what it means to be, a, you know, to become uh, a, a culture of creators and, and how, we, how we develop boundaries uh, socially and institutionally and, and figure all of that out. Um, I want to ask about uh, your work over the last, especially in 2017, you've been bringing up some really interesting stuff that's been coming up on YouTube, and I think that that's super relevant and I hope also feeds uh, some of the questions for the Q&A. Yeah, so the, the current report that I'm working on and doing research for is looking specifically at uh, far-right influencers on YouTube um, with, with the understanding that YouTube is also an extremely popular platform. Um, people more and more are turning there for entertainment, news, uh, political commentary, any number of things. Um, and there actually is this network of influencers who have far-right views who spend their time, um, you know, who make content that's, you know, criticizing feminism, criticizing um, Islam, uh, criticizing the Black Lives Matter movement, and in some cases, uh, explicitly promoting white nationalist and white supremacist ideology. Um, so again, I think that um, what the, a lot of the conclusions that I'm coming to around like education and content creation, it's, uh, or I should say the, the opinions that I'm forming around it are that we should continue to encourage um, production and media production, but it can't be done in a vacuum. I think we need to continue to understand that, you know, media creation, 
happens uh, as people are forming their ideologies, as they are promoting certain ideas, and uh, we can't kind of leave the rest of, of education and, and the thought process kind of behind in favor of, of just promoting condensation. Yeah. So do you, your answer to this was, was somewhat um, implicit in, in what you just said, but uh, do you, so is, is it as simple as digital literacy? Do you think that um, programming, uh, whether it's through schools or after school programs or uh, electives uh, at, the, at every level, it should be, um, is it that easy? I, I think that digital literacy is good and it's necessary, but I don't think that it's sufficient on its own. I think that it needs to be paired with continual, you know, uh, education in other subjects um, that uh, will help people form understandings of the world um, that are, you know, based on history, based on social science, based on uh, kind of um, understandings of, uh, bigotry and the way that uh, it operates, because without that, you see the same uh, kind of bigoted ideas getting getting propagated through content creation. Yeah. Becca, um, thank you so much for this. Thank you. I have so many more questions for you, um, like for realsies. You should see <laughs> the report, uh, when I read the report, my margins are all, all scribble scraps. So anyway, I'm gonna email you those questions. <laughs> but in the meantime, um, I really would love to hear from some of the people in this room uh, because there are, are so many uh, enormous and active brains here. Um, and I would love to make this a, a more open dialogue. So um, I am really good with awkward silences, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna quiet now and just uh, leave the mics open. Does somebody have the, the extra handheld? Okay, so maybe we'll share gonna wait for somebody else, but so I was randomly selected to be part of the Gallup polls, and they have a new project called Newslens. So they sent me an email and told me as many times a day as you want, go to this website, and what they want you to do is read articles and then rate the trustworthiness of it. So as you might imagine, I've been very interested in this and do it almost daily. But what I was curious about was, um, you know, how are people in this media context deciding what's trustworthy or not? So, as you might imagine, somebody like me, the normal kind of things that I read and I trust would include the New York Times, AP, Washington Post, or whatever. But I see they you so you rate the trustworthiness, but you could see what the average trustworthiness. Uh, rating is based on what all of the other um, participants rated that that piece at, and it's, I have to tell you, some of it was surprising to me because it was lower than what I expected. So how 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 do people determine what they trust now? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's something that we're kind of in the midst of trying to, you know, that's one of the research questions essentially driving the work that we're doing. So I think there's no easy answers, but um, one thing I will say with the far right communities that we're looking at, um, a lot of them have this broader institutional distrust of mainstream news outlets like the New York Times, like the Washington Post, um, especially CNN, for some reason they hate CNN. Um, and, uh, 
And they are making a conscious choice to opt out of getting information from those sources. Um, they see them as, you know, biased to the liberal side. Um, they, you know, probably no surprise, like the, the reasons that um, uh, people don't trust them. It's, you know, the idea that there's media elites and all of these uh, these ideas that have been propagated, I think, for a while. Um, but they're specifically turning to, you know, uh, right-leaning organizations, but also to places like YouTube, where trust is built in very different ways. So um, one thing I'm looking at with the report I'm working on is the way that uh, YouTube influencers uh, essentially use, like, blogging-style videos and develop this really personal rapport with their audience. They'll do Q&A so people can ask them questions directly, and people start feeling like these content creators are more responsive to their needs than major news outlets are. So it doesn't matter to them whether you have that credential, right? They just trust that credential to a certain degree. Um, to them, it's almost uh, you're more trustworthy if you reject that system. So I think we do have to like think about this in, in broader terms like that. Um, Becca, I'm going to be curious to hear a little bit also about what we were talking about earlier, the path of the game of creating a fake news item and the fun that can be had of getting it into mainstream media. You touched on it, but if you could trace that out a little more, I think it'd be very interesting for the audience. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so so one thing we've looked at is kind of like the path of a, a fake news story or the path of media manipulation from the far right. So. If we go back to thinking about those um, image boards, 4chan and 8chan, a lot of times that's where uh, um, conspiracy theories will, will start, where um, fake news stories start. Um, it's kind of this like breeding ground of ideas and people will throw paint at the wall and see what sticks. Um, and this is an example of that. I forget actually which exact image board this was sourced to, but this is an anti-Semitic meme that got created. Um, you'll see there, that's the Star of David saying that uh, Hillary Clinton is corrupt, um, and it kind of has this implication that like she's corrupt in part because she's like taking money from powerful players who are Jewish. Um, and this got developed uh, in far-right spaces, but then it got picked up and tweeted by Donald Trump's uh, Twitter account during the 2016 election. Um, and so you have these things that kind of like start in, in far-right communities, but they can really quickly get amplified and broadcast to a much bigger audience. And so that's kind of like one rung on the ladder. And then what happens after that, once they've been, you know, promoted by a bigger name, you know, someone like Donald Trump, um, but also sometimes there's people like um, Alex Jones, who runs the really popular conspiracy theory uh, uh, organization called InfoWars, you know, um, they'll kind of post out a story, and then because it got broadcast so widely, mainstream news organizations then consider it newsworthy to report on it. So once Donald Trump tweeted this out, mainstream news organizations felt that it was newsworthy to report on the fact that he tweeted out this anti-Semitic meme. Yeah. Um, they're trying to debunk it, right, or to criticize it, but again, what ends up happening is unintentionally they end up spreading it to even more people. So the, the meme gets more and more uh, uh, reach over time. So there really is, we kind of think of it as like this ladder of like influence and, and things that start kind of in these like, um, you know, 
deep, what we think of as like the deep dark corners of the web, kind of really quickly uh, gain a lot of mainstream coverage. There, I just want to say on, on that point, so one of the really interesting things that I, I found about 4chan and 8chan, so these are really important message boards, right, for, for um, the sort of origin story for a lot of these poisonous memes. And the technology is such that they're pretty simply just requiring a certain file type, right, like a JPEG extension um, as the first part of the post. And it would be just as easy uh, for um, software groups to require that when you post the JPEG uh, and submit it to a forum like that, that you cite sources, that it has an embedded uh, source in its code. These things are all doable. Um, so, so just food for thought that uh, these are not things that are, are where we have no ways of, of sort of filtering and thinking uh, culturally about what we expect from, uh, from our tech sources. Uh, yes, I do. Oh, another great one. Yeah, so on the right, this is another example of a similar thing happening. Um, I don't know if people uh, recognize the woman on the right. That's Emma Gonzalez from uh, Stormin Douglas High School, um, one of the teens who have been uh, fighting for gun control following the mass shooting there. Um, she uh, was featured in a, a photo shoot for Teen Vogue, I believe, in which she held up a poster that had a target on it. So it was kind of a play on you know, gun control and having imagery around that. Um, on, uh, again, it was either 4chan or 8chan, um, one of these image boards, they decided, this was a case where they explicitly decided that they wanted to kind of trick people through fake imagery. Um, you can see the, the real image is on the right, and then on the left, they decided to Photoshop uh, the Constitution onto the poster, so it made it seem like she was tearing up the Constitution. Um, then what they do once they, you know, so actually what we observed them kind of going through a bunch of different iterations of this, people would kind of like within the community, they would post a Photoshop, and some of the other people would say like, no, that doesn't look realistic enough, like let's try again. And eventually once they got to this version, which they thought was realistic looking enough, they would kind of say like, okay, let's, let's spread this far and wide. So then they spread it on Twitter, on Facebook, and it got a lot of legs. Um, and it did to a certain extent get picked up by uh, mainstream news sources. Again, even if it's to debunk it, they see it as a success because then it reaches more eyeballs. interesting conversation, uh, just a couple of things I was thinking. You know, I wonder, what do you think, I mean, to what extent are these uh, objects of cultural production an indication of how, how impoverished our cultural production has become, you know, um, compared to other markers of American history, like the 60s, 30s, 1880s, or whatever? Because if you think about it, all these words that we use in this context, like, like fact-checking and source-checking, and, and or, or even memes that that acquire such power that they're followed by millions of people. Uh, just a simple image, you know, or, or an image that's not actually, I'm not talking about this image, but the other one with Hillary Clinton and, you know, this kind of cheap anti-Semitic, uh, anti-communist because the star is red. You know, it's not the Nazi type, it's not yellow, but it's red. Um, I, wa I, I wonder what, how much this tells us about the prophetic state of American politics, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, because, we have no other way of expressing our political positions than through the most simplistic 
form of symbolic production, which is the meme, which is something that's literally completely devoid of anything beyond the most visceral, immediate, kind of almost in the level of a simplistic animal, you know, like stimuli response, you know, the red, the, the star of David, you know, the Jews are at fault, or, and then of course, somebody who's not anti-Semitic is offended viscerally. But if we're reduced to politics in that level, you know, I think, I think there's another question, like why are we reduced to this level of simplicity? And also just to add, you know, with Hillary, I mean, you know that video on YouTube when she laughed when they talked about how Gaddafi was murdered? I mean, this is like another head of state, and she was the Secretary of State of the United States, and she laughed sadistically, right? Now, that's lost, I'm not a supporter of the Republican Party, but that's lost in the conversation between Hillary supporters and Trump supporters, that we're not talking about some kind of a virtuous, you know, role model here of politics. And so in other words, why the simplicity in American politics? We're reducing everything to means, uh, requiring sources, for example, Bef I mean, we shouldn't have to require sources when we say something. It could be just our own ideas, you know, that we filtered. You know, so I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think you're, you're touching on something that um, I think Mark actually asked me about that I kind of uh, neglected to, to address head on, but there's a real difference between um, fake news and what we're calling media manipulation. Um, uh, which essentially, like with media manipulation, we think of it as more broadly, like how to manipulate social media platforms and uh, news outlets to spread the ideas that they want to spread. So uh, one of the main aspects of that is, you know, they've figured out that spreading memes is extremely uh, effective because you can't fact check a meme. As you said, it's a gut check thing. By their nature, they have to be simple so they can only kind of convey one or two really strong ideas. Um, and uh, that's not going to get solved through fact-checking efforts um, and, uh, you know, rebuilding trust in mainstream media institutions or whatever kind of, like, institutional changes we want to make. Um, I think that we have to also be thinking about, like, these affordances of the Internet that kind of, yeah, break things down so simply. Um, I don't think I have, like, an answer for what you were talking about beyond that, but I think it is a, a really uh, valuable question to start thinking about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ramble at that for a second because uh, I find that question really provocative and I find your questions this morning, by the way, extremely provocative uh, in, in review of, of the other panel. Uh, so just appreciation. Um, I, think, I think one thing to think about is I spent a lot of time after I read this report thinking about um, that, that issue as well. And I think... To, to draw that type of question from this would, um, we have to make the assumption that these, that the intention of the initial image is dialogue. And I don't think that the intention, this is my opinion, I don't think the intention of the initial um, image is dialogue. I think it's uh, the way that uh, graffiti is used. If we think about other symbol systems, it's, it's more um, to mark, mark territory. And uh, I think when we think about it that way, um, it has a, a totally different, uh, it's just a, a different frame with which to consider that very good question that you just asked. I don't, I don't stand on one side of the question or the other. I, I think it's a really important and provocative one. But I do think that one of the things that I've learned from this conversation with Becca and from, from the report from Data and Society is that um, 
memes are being used in all kinds of ways. If you look back historically at what memes, the sort of origin of the idea of memes, it was more about uh, thinking about uh, how to spread things like art and architecture, um, you know, Roman, uh, Greek and Roman bridges, uh, keystones, things like that, and, and how we could sort of use symbols to convey ideas that had been captured in one society or culture and bring them to another. And so uh, there was that purpose originally to memes, but I don't think we can, we can necessarily always, um, uh, we can always sort of uh, assume that uh, the purpose is dialogue. I think uh, there's a lot of nuance and intersection. So that's just some thoughts. I had a comment and a question. The, the comment was, um, you know, I heard about 4chan during the election, so I, I checked it out. <laughs> and um, there are all different kinds of things on there, but much of the content is so, just so awful. I mean, it's the, the images that you're showing are kind of subtle, but it's really, really extreme material, and it's extremely widespread. You know, millions and millions of people use this, so it's that sort of substrate, that burbling substrate of the internet is, is, is very disturbing, you know, it, because it's, you know, it's, it's very, very close to violence, the, the actual content. Yeah. And then the question is, I appreciate what you're saying about the difficulty of disaggregating, you know, all the causes of re-election, it's been explained about 500%, you know, why, why Trump won. On the other hand, I think that, you know, Trump was perhaps the most, one of the most effective people at generating memes or fake news. You know, because I remember I got together with college friends, one of whom is now a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And I said, well, the media loves Trump. And he said, no, the media hates Trump. And I said, the media loves Trump. Because how could you get more clicks on a news story than reporting on the latest whopper or bigoted statement that he made? It was like guaranteed internet traffic. Um, and so the, the question is, you know, why was that? Why was the media so willing to report these things that he would say when, you know, even very early on, when he was one among a very large field of Republican candidates, you know, who had no political experience, very few people were interested in him, why did they make him into such a star? And does that have something to do with maybe competing with these, other, these alternative news sources? Is it the internet distribution of traditional media that caused them to kind of stoop to that level? I wonder if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, that's such a good point and, and a really interesting question. And um, I, I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons, but the, the one that we tend to look at at Data and Society is the, the economic incentives of journalism and the news media as it currently stands. Um, so if you think back to when I was talking about um, ad revenue based on clicks, um, the, the news media at this point, I mean, there are certainly news media organizations that require subscriptions online to view the content, but far and away the majority of content um, is using an ad revenue-based model. So again, they're trying to get clicks, um, and because there's this like overabundance of information, um, we're also kind of uh, all operating in uh, what, what has been dubbed the attention economy. Everyone's vying for attention, partly to just get attention and get voices heard, partly also because that's how you can make money, by getting more clicks on a story. Um, Donald Trump is really amazing at uh, saying things that he knows are going to get clicks. Um, and so there is actually, I, I would agree with you and your statement that um, 
the, the media loves Trump, even if the individuals within news media organizations don't love him. I think that there's actually a symbiotic relationship there because he provides really easy stories that don't even require like, you know, cost intensive investigative reporting. Um, you know, literally if he just tweets something out and that's newsworthy, that's really easy reporting that you know is gonna get a lot of clicks. So I think that that's, uh, a big part of it, and I also think that, like, as we talk about fake news, misinformation, all of these things, um, it's it's really important to think about the economic structures right now. Um, and to to tie it back to the very beginning of the the conversation, thinking about like the internet and you know how much things have actually changed or or how big the impact is. Some of these things we've actually seen like to a certain degree before. So uh, in the 19th century. Um, there was a trend in journalism called yellow journalism. And if you think about um, back then, most uh, newspapers weren't sold based on subscriptions either. It was what you think of as like the, the newsboy, like newsies selling newspapers on the corner. And they, because of that, they were just trying to sell individual copies of newspapers. They also had to resort to um, really kind of sensationalist, you know, clickbait of the 19th century. Um, and sometimes that would devolve into outright lies because the economic incentives were there. Um, and so I think that, you know, um, uh, and then, you know, uh, a new era started in terms of like the New York Times and, and other uh, news organizations that were based on subscriptions, not to say that those were, were perfect either, but, um, you know, there are trends in news media that happens and I think that the internet has kind of changed and, and influenced some of these trends in news media, but I don't think that they're irreparable. Um, I just think we need to think about what the mechanisms are. I just wanted to say to the earlier part of your comment about the horrific imagery in 4chan and 8chan, one of the things I learned um, in this experience is, is uh, so the, we didn't get to talk about the term red pilling, but I would, I would definitely encourage people to read the report and, and learn more about the sort of initiation process, for lack of a better uh, uh, term, uh, of how these disenfranchised um, people are sort of coming into the ranks. And one of the reasons that they use such horrifying imagery is really to keep um, people who don't have the potential to be sort of red-pilled, which is a, uh, is a, um, they're pulling from the matrix, right? So uh, that folks who don't have the potential to sort of uh, enter into the next phase of their initiation would, would likely turn away from 4chan and 8chan. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and for those who are so curious to go and check out 4chan and 8chan after this talk, um, keeping that in mind uh, and, and making sure, uh, I would even encourage anybody who does it to, to check out the report or the various um, shorter versions of the report that had been put out there so that you know what you're getting into. Um, uh, just to, I was actually gonna ask this question before, but, but you talked about the, the yellow journalism of the 19th century, and I was thinking of the, um, the National Enquirer, mm -hmm. and before that, the anti-Semitic pamphlets in na Nazi Germany, um, and to extend Arto's metaphor, um, the white powder metaphor, the pharmacology metaphor, how much of this do you think is the difference between the delivery system, you know, is 
it was the 19th century, the pill, and then the 21st century technology is that mainlining or, you know, is mm -hmm. it crack, mm -hmm. you know, and that that is really what makes the difference is the, is the not so much the message but the delivery system. And then the other half of the, the question is then, do you think there is, um, and this is a leading question, a role for us as, uh, uh, as teachers and professors in terms of liberal arts education um, because in order for this to stick, um, there has to be, uh, people have to be not able to distinguish between what is plausible and what really isn't. Uh, First of all, that's an amazing metaphor, and I may need to start using that, the pill versus mainlining. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, that a lot of what technology has done in various iterations is it's lowered the barrier for, um, for entry for creating content, and that comes with uh, any number of complications. So, um, you know, to, to go back to thinking about like the recent Facebook hearings and you know Facebook's constant line that like they're trying to connect the world and make the world more connected and assuming that, that, that that's a good thing. Well, that ignores the fact that white nationalist groups have historically been able to thrive when there's been technology that has allowed them to connect more. Um, and so um, that's all a way of saying I agree with you. <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, you know, educators, uh, I also agree with you there. I think that there um, uh, is absolutely a role that uh, educators can play, and I think actually it's more vital now than ever, in part because um, educational institutions are seen as a battleground by these people on the far right. They see educational institutions as um, kind of indoctrination, you know, places of indoctrination about social justice, they're trying to invalidate, you know, feminist scholarship, uh, critical race scholarship. Um, they're trying to claim that it's ideological, that it's not scientific, um, and and sometimes they're applying that to sociology and the social sciences more broadly. Um, so these aspects of academia and, and education are under attack by these groups, and I think that um, just you know, education is in some ways kind of the most important thing that, that can be done right now. So, I mean, props, props to all of the educators in this room <laughs> with that in mind. Yeah, I, I think I have a very similar question. And I mean, as a presenter, I was wondering, I mean, it seems as though different standards are set for different types of uh, information and research and data. And I mean, if I'm working with some data, I have to look at or try to understand where it's coming from, the metadata, you know, how it can be used. And in this case, it seems as though we can, I mean, I can just upload a file on maybe YouTube. And how, how can one distinguish whether uh, it's coming from a particular group or not? And is there any way in which people can be held accountable for what they put up on the web. I mean, it seems to me that certainly if you can't trust the information that you're reading, then that creates a big problem. I mean, then, I mean, is it that you have to go back and refer the back for research to find out where the data is coming from? I mean, is there some way in which uh, there can be some 
is not the case, it's created, which immediately identifies where a particular piece of information is coming from. And I mean, I'm, I'm a little reluctant and I mean, I'm thinking about this because I do understand the importance of freedom and we don't want to regulate to the extent to which you decrease people's creativity and initiatives and all of that. But it seems to me that information is so important and if we have misinformation, we're really making really bad decisions based on, I mean, not the decision, but the information is bad. So what's, what's the next um, phase in this process of change in terms of, you know, having all of this information out there and being able to express the information? So are you asking in terms of like um, the, the people that run the platforms or in terms of the people that run the news organizations or all of the above or? You've talked about different periods, you know, the 1900s, you talked mm -hmm. about different, different phases and how, you know, the, how information is being put forward and used. Um, so I'm wondering, I mean, what's the next phase in this process of, oh, you know, technological development and the use of information? Um, oh, there's a bunch of different directions I could go in talking about it. I mean, I think there's already there's new um, new phases of like potential misinformation. So like looking at the Photoshop uh, Constitution, you know, there's a lot of like um, messing with video content that people can do now, um, like messing with yeah audiovisual content. Um, so I think that in terms of misinformation, the technological challenges are always going to, you know, continue to be there. Um, I think if we want to move into kind of a, a new phase or a new era around all of this, I think it is really going to be up to the um, social media platforms and uh, and the news media. But more than anything, the, the social media platforms, because in a lot of ways they hold the power over the news media right now. Um, and so, like, I think, I think that's why seeing an event like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, having to answer to Congress and Senate is um, really crucial right now. Uh, you know, I don't know if anything is going to come out of that specific event, but um, they need to think about how they will be handling content because they are the vehicles through which people are, are getting their information now. And, um, you know, clearly they weren't anticipating this level of crisis. I wanted to say two things on that. I think uh, it goes back to your question. Uh, I think the next, personally, I think the next phase is about art and humanities. Um, I think it's uh, not a technological solution. And I think that what we're proving to ourselves after the last election is that, uh, that humanity, it's kind of in our hands. And um, in, I can say in the, in the tech sector, this is the first time in the decades uh, since the, the first real boom that uh, tech ethics is a real part of the conversation where there are actually software companies who are um, making a, a serious pledge to education, to literacy, to computer science education, making sure um, that ethics is a part of uh, those folks who are coming out of Stanford's and the uh, million other, not million, a uh, couple hundred other thousand 
institutions in the country that serve that sector. Um, I do think that it's, it's um, if you look across universities, I think the growing ones that I know, this is without data, but um, you see more interdisciplinary programs between humanities and computer science, humanities and engineering. Uh, you see more art and technology programs. And I, I do think that there, if, uh, I, I think the next phase is about the humanities and I think it's about us. Um, uh, and I think what, what uh, young people are as savvy and perceptive about as uh, your question is, is that uh, things need to change and that uh, it's, it's humans that are gonna change them, uh, you know. So uh, there was that that I wanted to say. That's a way better answer. I'll go with that as well. <laughs> um, and there was another thing that I wanted to say that uh, I have now completely forgotten. I, I, I just wanted to see if any students had any questions. Would any students Please. like to ask a question? We're not leaving until a student asks a question. <laughs> uh, forgive me if you touched upon this before I came into the room, but um, you talked a lot about media manipulation in a national standpoint as far as uh, uh, white supremacist groups and other extremists that we have within our country here. A lot of people, when they think of cybersecurity, they think of actual attacks of hardware like Iran and North Korea or China would do upon us. In the 2016 election, we had a great example of what can be done through manipulation from a foreign power in what happened with the Russian meddling in the election. What is, or what are some of the steps that we're taking moving forward to prevent any recurrence of an event like that, because that's kind of intrinsically more dangerous than attacking our actual infrastructure, because you're attacking our minds and our influence. So sorry, I didn't catch that actual, which? What are some of the things that we can do to prevent something like that happening moving forward, to kind of screen information that's coming in from foreign powers and foreign countries? Oh, I see, I see. Um, yeah, this is the other thing that Facebook has been on the spot for <laughs> recently. Um, I mean, I think, uh, Unfortunately, I don't have any particularly good answers right now. Our, our organization has been very good at like really nuanced understandings of the problem. And then when people ask us about solutions, we're kind of like, oh. Um, but um, uh, we wanna move towards thinking along those lines. And I think one thing that we've um, started to do is like look at the initial solutions that for example, like Facebook has, has proposed and start to kind of poke holes in it and see like, okay, how could this potentially backfire? So for example, Facebook for a while was having like the, um, putting verified next to certain news sources or saying certain things were contested. Well, what that was ignoring was the fact that, um, kind of the phenomenon I was talking about before, some people have already like explicitly opted out of certain news sources um, that Facebook might consider to be uh, you know, a, a legitimate news source, but if someone's being radicalized, to see that it's been verified by Facebook isn't gonna do anything for them. Um, so I think what, what we're trying to do is start to look at those initial solutions, start to observe what different tech problems are doing and see uh, what we find is most effective. I'll, I'll just really quickly say, um, this is less about uh, fake news being shared, but in terms of harassment, um, one uh, new kind of terms of service thing that we saw that was New and we are optimistic about was the platform Medium um, uh, that has like long form blog posts that people can post. Um, they decided that they were gonna ban people who 
um, not only posted offensive content to Medium, but who they could prove were posting offensive content on other platforms. Um, so it's a strategy a lot of, of a lot of white nationalists to kind of put on like a, a clean face for uh, certain social media platforms. Um, and so someone like Richard Spencer is really good at, you know, branding himself as like, oh, he's the clean cut new face of, of white nationalism. Um, well, if, if they could show that he was being, uh, you know, uh, offensive or if there was any type of harassment on another platform, then they would be kicked off of, of Medium. So that's just one small example, but I think that like, we're trying to stay observant about what different platforms are doing and seeing unintended consequences and also what is working that we could apply more clearly. I remember what I wanted to say. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, and it's actually a, a good transition maybe. One thing you can do is support organizations like Data and Society. Um, uh, these are organizations that I, I think n now that we are aware after the 2016 election of what has gone on, um, I don't think that there's going to be another election quite like it, and I reserve the right to be wrong about that, but uh, maybe that's just hopeful thinking. So I would encourage you to support Data and Society and check out some of these reports. I also would encourage you to check out uh, organizations like Mouse. You know, I want to give a shout to uh, the, the work at Mouse. Uh, the work that we do at Mouse is about bringing equity to the, the sort of pipeline, the pathway that brings um, young people like the ones that are in this room into the sector that we're talking about today. And so in response to that question and, and some of these questions, one of the things I wanted to say is this, that um, I think our platforms will do a better job of reflecting humanity when the designers of the platforms look more like humanity. Right, so raise your hand if you've been on the floor at Facebook or Google or any giant software company that has a headquarters here in New York, right? It does not look like the back half of this room yet. So I would say if there's anything that you all can do to think about how we change platforms for changing what, how our technology reflects humanity, it's to find yourself there. It doesn't need, mean you need to be an engineer, Find yourself a job in marketing, find yourself a job in sales, whatever you're gonna go do, but until our uh, businesses in technology reflect the humanity that we expect from them, uh, they're gonna fall short. Yeah, join them or challenge them from the outside. <laughs> BMCC, I am so honored and uh, feel very grateful and privileged that we had a chance to have this discussion here. Um, I love uh, the, uh, the experience of the faculty and really still believe in this institution. So uh, I'm just really grateful to be here. My thanks to, back there, uh, for your time. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share with me, Find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode one, an Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. 
This show would not be possible without support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.